Welcome to Illumination by Modern Campus. Through this series, we speak to higher education thought leaders about the trends, ideas, and opportunities that are shaping the future of this industry and pick their brains for best practices and advice that leaders can apply to their own institutions. On today's episode, Evolution Editor-in-Chief and Illumination host Amrit Alawalia is joined by Angie Kamath, Dean of the New York University School of Professional Studies. The two discuss the twin challenges of meeting revenue and access missions in continuing education and reflect on how colleges and universities can leverage continuing ed to make a significant social impact both in the community and around the world. Great. Well, I'm, I'm joined here by uh, Angie Cometh from uh, New York University School of Professional Studies. Thank you so much for joining us for the Illumination podcast. My pleasure, Amrit. Thank you so much for having me. So, I mean, the work that you're doing is, is fascinating at SPS. And, you know, if you if you go through the archives of the evolution, you'll see some pieces from, from your predecessor, Dennis DiLorenzo, on some of the, the structural changes that SPS went through about five or six years ago to create a more consistent credentialing structure. But the work that you're doing starts to reflect on a secondary mission, a secondary focus for, call it a continuing ed division, an extension division, of, of actually having a very impactful role in the community. So... As the workforce development arm of post-secondary institutions, you know, what is that social development mission for divisions like yours, for divisions like SBS? That's a great question, Amrit. And so, you know, for me, it actually does go back to the kind of history. And I think it's fascinating that we were founded in the middle of the Great Depression in 1934. And the notion that we've had all of these evolutions, as you described, um, is really important. So we were founded to kind of serve the workforce needs of a very kind of middle class um, professional. In the case of 1934, we were really focused on serving immigrants and the workforce mm-hmm. need for immigrants at that time was um, language skills. And so the fact that, um, you know, we kind of go there fast forward, you know, 88 years, um, right now we're living in a post-COVID world and the need to reskill, um, the need to kind of help folks reinvent themselves, you know, as we look at the great resignation and people want to enter new areas, think differently about their careers, there is an incredible opportunity for us to really think about meeting the moment, meeting the needs of learners, meeting the needs of industry. And so I'm really kind of quite thrilled to be here again, whether um, in our evolution, we started working kind of really focused on immigrants kind of, you know, for a while as women were entering the workforce kind of in the seventies and eighties, we really focused on um, upskilling them. And I think today we're in this um, very transformative moment, right? And I think it's, it's exciting, but I think there's also real, to answer your question, there's real, you know, social impact based work to be done. There's a lot of young adults who had a a tremendous amount of learning loss. There's a lot of young adults that didn't, you know, thought they were going to go to college, but maybe they didn't show up. Maybe they melted away. Um, There are a lot of young adults who maybe tried to go away to school, but they really didn't want to pay college tuition and be remote. And so there's a whole set of workforce development opportunities for us whether it's from young adult kind of um, career pathing and skilling and degree and credentials and and certificates through to, you know, I think about older adults. And I think that there are a number of of groups that older adults fall into. There's folks who are retiring and they're looking for their second act and it's less for the money, but it's more for a purposeful retirement. I think we have something to offer to them in terms of Mm -hmm. entrepreneurship and kind of augmenting skills. I think there's a whole set of sort of middle income older Americans who can't live in the fixed income of the social security system, need something, don't want to work at a Home Depot or a Target or a Walmart and want to have purpose, but they're looking for, you know, something that's also going to pay the bills. 
Um, and so, you know, from that spectrum, um, there's a lot of um, opportunity. And I believe that it's our real responsibility um, to embrace that, that social impact mission in a professional studies school and have a diversity of delivery, a diversity of types of learners, a diversity of programs, a diversity of educational offerings to kind of meet folks and, and, and meet this moment in time in the same way no. that we've done historically. It's, it's fascinating you frame it in, in, this, in these terms because there's, there's a, a twin challenge that you see in the continuing and workforce ed space, right? Where on the one hand, it's the lifelong learning arm of the institution. It's, it's the department, it's the division of the institution that's designed to create access for those who aren't served necessarily by, by what's being offered through the traditional main campus. And that's, that's great. But on the other hand, there's a business imperative. Right? There's a necessity to be at least revenue neutral, if not you know, contributing significant sums back, back to the institution supporting operational costs and supporting, supporting the organization. So when you look at this, the social mission of, of, of the workforce development of the School of Professional Studies, how do you frame that in terms of a business case? How do you, how do you frame out the business impact or the, the, the business value of that kind of work? I mean, it's such a good question, and I, I don't know if what I'm about to say is going to be a bit sacrilegious, but um, <laughs> as you described, for many years, continuing education um, was a big catalog with a lot of offerings, and we were the cash cow, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if we weren't doing that, we were chasing the trend, right? And we were trying to kind of figure out what are those bleeding ed, edge technologies or courses or kind of almost like kind of not gimmicky, but kind of quick hits, right, that yeah. we could offer, um, and if not that, you know, there, there were always kind of partnerships to, to think about in terms of marketing and, and having, um, you know, a partnership with a trade association to get professional development credits. And so those are all, I think, I think all of those are, are, are thinking that's kind of, you know, long gone. I think that's, that's thinking in the past. And so my antidote to, you know, chasing the trend or, you know, trying to kind of make sense where we don't want to lose money, um, but we want to kind of really offer something that's of value to our partners and to our learners. The way I think about it is um, really just kind of going back to the vision, which is for us, we want to serve this kind of range of learners and the range of learners. It's not just, I don't view professional studies as um, non-degree. It is um, employers don't think of education as non-degree versus degree. We'll go to this school for one thing and a different school for another. They want to come to a partner where they can, you know, quickly upskill their, you know, middle management workforce. They can put up and coming emerging leaders in a, um, very kind of bespoke and high-end executive education program. Um, they want to think about the diversity of their young talent coming in. And so what I you know, would say, rather than chase the trend, rather than be the cash cow, figure out how to partner with you know, the right entities, industries, associations to be that partner to say, I am like literally your lifelong learning partner um, at different kind of you know, points for different parts of your workforce. I think that's really powerful. And that's really different from partnering with an association to say, let me be your professional education credit arm. Um, that's, I think every industry that I know of is struggling with diversity. Every industry that I know of is really struggling at a management level with how to think about DEI issues. Mm-hmm. Almost every industry that I can think of is experiencing at that kind of middle level management, a lot of turnover. And so we are really trying to figure out uh, from a professional studies um, perspective, how do we have responses that can um, be you know, 
that that can adapt to what employers want right now. Absolutely. Well, you know, as you look at the the world of, of continuing in professional ed and, and try again trying to balance, I guess, these these twin priorities, what are some of the most common obstacles that leaders can face? Uh, when it comes to positioning their division to start impacting social change, both at home in the neighborhood, but also uh, from a global context. Yeah, so I go back to this this notion of um, trying to again, whether it's called whether we say it's ch- chasing you know some labor market trends um, versus really working with you know employers that are real, that are hiring, that have needs right now, I think a real obstacle, and again, we talk about this all the time, how in God's name do we compete with Google that's launching a $100 million fund in you know, continuing education? How do we position ourselves? And a lot of corporations are saying, do we really need college degrees? <laughs> and so I think, you know, let's not fight them, let's join them. And let's really figure out how we can either partner with um, entities that are thinking about reskilling and, you know, again, what's um, a good example would be great that, you know, many companies are, are trying to really have a diverse um, set of youth pipelines for um, uh, a more diverse kind of entry-level workforce. Well, then maybe there's a training that we can offer to the HR managers, because I suspect that the training and interview and screening and talent development um, protocols might need to adapt, right? So not fighting the trend, but kind of adapting to it. Um, I do think some of the other common obstacles are, you know, and there's been a proliferation, I think, of third-party partners, right? The kind of marketing channels. So um, whether it's the Coursera's of the world or, or other entities, and I think they have an incredibly important value proposition, um, their revenue share models. And I do think one of the obstacles that a lot of um, uh, professional and, and continuing ed school leaders face is, do I partner? Am I able to kind of make up in volume what I'm losing in the revenue share? And how do I think about partnerships? And I think that one needs to be really careful in the same way that you're asking these questions about, um, you know, how do we think about a social mission? You have to really start to prioritize what you're looking for and what you want to really have as primary to your goals. Is it outreach to different communities? Is it financial? Is it um, broadening your range of sectors and industries that you're relevant to? Um, and I think the responses are going to be quite different, right? If you want to increase access, you might really think about a, a marketing channel that includes a partner that's focused on revenue share. If you are interested in working with um, subsets of populations, maybe you work with an ARP foundation. Maybe you work with local community college system. If you're looking at veterans, you know, maybe there's kind of different ways to kind of tap into that market. But I do see, you know, this... Um, notion of trying to keep up with the trends. And I think that's a little bit of a fool's game, Amrit, in terms of the, the, the trends are changing too fast. And at this point, I've worked probably for about 20 years in workforce development. And um, the best employer partners that I've had have been the most honest. And they've, they've been really clear, which is employers don't even know the skills that they totally need. Um, this notion of the future of work is ephemeral. It is not always clear. Um, we're forced to make hiring decisions based on imperfect information. And so I think the word of caution to leaders, you know, in, in similar positions to me is um, be really careful about, you know, putting too much weight on a new program, thinking that that's going to be the cash cow or putting too much weight to sort of say, great, I've got this new program that's going to be, um, you know, the highest quality in the most cutting edge ways. There's a lot of private sector entities that can kind of outbeat us in terms of mm. higher ed and, 
you know, in terms of the, the technology or in terms of the, what they can pay people or how they can market. And so I think that being really mindful of competitors, I guess, is the point. That makes good sense. It's interesting you framed it that way, right? Because it really, it starts with strategy. It starts with intentionality. And then you pursue particular avenues or partners or channels to execute on that, on that strategy in a way that's mindful, it's intentional. So it actually, what a segue. Because one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about is the work that SPS is doing with organizations like 110 and the Afghan uh, Crisis Fellowship. Um, obviously, through these partnerships, you're, you're really positioning the, the School of Professional Studies to make a significant social impact. And by the way, for, for any listeners who are interested in learning more about the work that SPS is doing with those uh, organizations, um, visit the Modern Campus website, find the blog post that is associated with this uh, interview, and we'll have hyperlinks there that you can, you can click and, and learn more. So, you know, coming back to this idea of intentionality, why are you so passionate about these projects with 110 and the Afghan Crisis Fellowship? Great question. To me, without waxing too philosophical, Amrit, um, <laughs> having, um, my, my parents immigrated to this country from India. Um, I was inculca- inculcated with a sense that um, education and career mobility were kind of the keys to financial stability and financial independence. And that in America, the American dream is really about having a choice filled life. And in America, having a choice filled life is having that kind of financial independence. So for me, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I remember my first job when I was 10 years old, it was a paper route that my dad made me get. Um, and he, um, uh, insisted that I invest my earnings in the stock market. (laughs) So I was reading the barons and picking stocks in dividend reinvestment programs at the age of 10. And really it was just this sense of of, um, kind of economic mobility and financial independence is kind of what's so important. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, why is 110 or the Afghan Crisis Fellowship so kind of personally important to me? I think that giving voice to um, people who, you know, at times are marginalized, but hopefully, you know, can be able to kind of get into the mainstream. That's how I focus my career. That's, I think, you know, people need to believe in something. I think kind of, you know, making the most revenue, that's not something to believe in. (laughs) Um, I also, you know, again, it's, it's personal um, to me, you know, um, For those who have resources, it is expected, it's our responsibility, it's not a choice um, to really kind of bring voice and bring a platform to help everyone kind of um, enter into that mainstream. And what's been interesting across my career, I mean, my very first job after grad school, running a nonprofit, was working, you know, largely with um, kind of older women who had, you know, college degrees, but kind of wanted to get um, back into the workforce. And, you know, I often hear from employers, well, they don't exactly have the work experience that's a match. Okay. I then went to work for, you know, city government where I would, you know, we would work on um, workforce development programs and, you know, not everyone had a college degree. And so that was the barrier, but we would, we would get employers to, to look past it. Um, I then worked for a tech job training nonprofit where, um, again, it was probably the lack of a college degree. And we were able to get employers extremely comfortable with um, uh, tech skill sets because um, it's really competency based. Um, I worked at CUNY, the City University of New York, one of the largest public higher ed institutions serving half a million students in the country. Um, and, you know, often it would be like, it's not the college degree that's the problem, it's the pedigree, it's the eliteness. And so long way to say, you know, it, it often feels like, who, who's getting the attention? Because <laughs> there's a lot of people that seem to be on the outside looking in. Yeah. And so to me, you know, the fact of the matter is, 
um, most of us, myself included, you know, we've at times, you know, been on the outside looking in and that it's really important to kind of be able to use um, professional education, competency-based skilling, very employer-focused experiential learning to bridge that gap. And it's a competence gap. It's a will gap. It's a, you know, um, an implicit bias gap or, you know, it's, it's um, what employers are always trying to do the right thing, but they're also trying to do the easy thing, right? And they're also trying to kind of do the thing that will make hiring kind of quicker, faster, more efficient. Um, and that often just excludes a lot of people. So, you know, why am I passionate about 110 and the Afghan Crisis Fellowship? These are all just examples. And again, next time we speak, I'll, you know, I'll have cooked up a couple more projects. But the point is, we'll never stop um, trying to find um, ways and opportunities to be able to bring folks that are kind of on the outside looking in into the fold, into the tent, into the umbrella. Mm -hmm. I'm mixing all my metaphors now, um, <laughs> but, but you get the point. I, I, first of all, I have no doubt. Um, but I'm curious, I mean, what did it take to get these initiatives off the ground? I mean, there had to be some level of startup cost. There had to be some level of buy-in. Uh, what, what was the process that you went to to, to create a, a general excitement uh, for, for the work that you guys are doing with those organizations? Sure. So, um, I mean, my, my slightly flip answer is very little. Um, <laughs> you know, again, I, I, and so that's the flip answer. The real answer is, you know, I never want to enter into a partnership where we don't have the ability be, to be successful. And so mm -hmm. the due diligence is the most important part of any partnership. It's really easy to say, yes, we're partnering, but you know, does it work for them? Does it work for us? Um, mm -hmm. I'm not interested in doing, um, you know, initiatives for the press release. And again, this is, I think, one of those kind of tensions that a lot of leaders in, in continuing ed might face, which is here's a, a partnership. And it, it's almost like if it's too quick and easy, it's probably too good to be true. Um, and so I think, you know, to get, you know, initiatives off the ground, I think a lot of due diligence to make sure that there's something in it for both partners. That's important. People can sniff out, of, you know, someone who's not, you know, focused on students um, or not focused on outcomes in a heartbeat. Um, and I think I've always I've, I've managed my, my career in workforce development where proof's in the pudding. Um, you know, at the end of the day, people can want to hire individuals, um, but the people that are being hired, again, if they have um, a background that's a little less traditional, the skills have to be there and the folks have to perform in the job and they have to do that exceedingly well. And so for me, I live in a very like kind of concrete world where we are going to be focused on excellent skill building. We are going to pressure test to make sure that folks can compete in the labor market, that they absolutely are kind of meeting the skills requirements of employers. And then proof's in the pudding. Are folks getting hired? Are they staying? Are they being retained? And so I think um, for me, you know, what does it take to get initiatives off the ground? do your homework, make sure that you can pull it off and be successful. And then I think, you know, workforce development in this kind of area of skill development and, and employer partnerships, it's a little bit like kind of venture capital. Like, I think there's a lot of ideas out there in venture capital. And I think when you talk to, to folks who do the funding, they're not always betting on the ideas, they're betting on the person. Can this person yeah. get the job done? Um, can this person, or in our case, our school, um, our faculty, can they get the job done? Are graduates from these programs um, hireable, employable, promotable? Um, are they helping us kind of achieve our goals? And so that's, I think, what I think about when I try to get initiatives off the ground. Um, and so, you know, for the example of 110, that's an initiative over 10 years. We have, you know, many building blocks in place, but we don't have all of them. But what we've mm -hmm. said is, you know, we today have a lot of the skill building, a lot of the curriculum, a lot of the certificates. We don't have a data system that really tracks, um, 
you know, for every continuing ed student, um, race, ethnicity, and age. And so we're going to have to build that part of it. Um, and so again, asking ourselves in the due diligence, is building it going to be worth it? Do I want to do that kind of level of data tracking? Because that's, that's an investment. And the answer for us was yes. Um, we think that there's going to be great benefit to being able to kind of look at our talent and who's going through our programs um, to be able to help companies that are looking for particular profiles. Um, in the Afghan Crisis Fellowship, a really different program, you know, the due diligence there is these are people's lives. These are folks who are refugees whose lives have been absolutely disrupted. Are we going to be a really responsible partner and be a um, welcoming kind of home for folks who have had huge disruption? Can we do that? Can we offer the support? Can we offer, um, you know, the other um, uh, aspects of, of support and wellness and mental health and housing? And, and can we be successful? And I wanted to probably help 20, um, 30, 200, you know, whatever the number is, I probably wanted to help, you know, multiples of the um, Afghan refugees that we were able to help, but we sort of looked at it and sort of said, we can be successful for a handful and we're going to do that. And we're going to do more next time. And we're going to, you know, we're talking right now about doing more around Ukrainian refugees. And, you know, sadly, there's probably always going to be a crisis, but we're going to want to do more and more. But we, we, we take that, that responsibility that I talked about yeah. um, before really seriously. And again, your reputation or integrity in this game is um, sacred. And you don't mess with that. You don't take on projects that you don't think you can complete. Absolutely. Well, Angie, I mean, that, that pretty much does it on my end. Is there anything you'd like to add in terms of advice that you might share with other leaders who, who might be looking to, to get socially-minded, community-minded programs off the ground? Okay, lightning round. Bearing in I'd mind say, that we've done a fair amount of advice. <laughs> yeah, no, right, for sure. But I think start small. Yeah. Again, I my rule of piloting is I don't care if I'm a pilot, I serve five people. If you are kind of, you know, building a program with intention that's kind of high quality, start small, learn kind of what's working well, and then scale. But don't ever be, you know, afraid to start small. I think, and then I'd say the, the, the last piece is, Give voice to learners. Talk to the folks that you're trying um, uh, to, to build programs for. Um, way too often, we are pretty paternalistic about what we think makes sense for folks. I think we're often very prescriptive about what worked for me and what my college experience looked like must be what you want. And the fact of the matter is, it's not. <laughs> it rarely ever is. And so I'd say start small and don't be afraid of that. It will scale if it's a good idea. And absolutely find ways to give voice to learners, to help learners kind of um, plug in, co-create, design, give feedback to the model. Like, I don't think that that nearly happens enough. And I, I quite frankly think the credibility and the trust building that you will have in a, in, by taking that step, you will have a program that will have many, many um, uh, um, you know, learners who would want to sign up if they know that legitimately um, folks are not trying to do this to make a buck, but they had talked to the folks that, you know, they're intending on helping. So those are, I think, my guiding principles, Amrit. Yeah, I mean, I, I so appreciate you taking the time out, Andrew, today to chat. Thank you so much for, for sharing your insights in this and, and joining us on, on today's podcast. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate um, all the work that you do and um, look forward to talking to you soon. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Modern Campus in partnership with The Evolution. Modern Campus empowers higher ed institutions to thrive when radical change is required to deal with lower student enrollments and revenue, rising costs, crushing student debt, and even school closures. 
Powered by the industry's only student-first modern learner engagement platform, Modern Campus supports every corner of the modern institution, from continuing and workforce education, to student affairs, to the registrar's office, to marketing and IT. To find out more on how you can transform your institution to meet the needs of the modern learner, visit moderncampus.com. That's moderncampus.com.